The following audio is from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Well, good morning, Harvest. My name is Steve Winstead. It is a joy and a privilege to get to be here with you. Last week, uh, Kenan talked about we are in a season of 40 days of prayer about how God might lead our members and regular attenders to be a part of uh, this building we're doing for children. We have a, a problem with, we have a lot of children here, and we, uh, the elders realize, man, there is a need to, uh, to have more space for kids, so that's a desperate need within our congregation. The uh, congregation, the members, uh, nearly unanimously affirmed uh, the elders leading in this, so we want you to be journeying with us and praying about this. One of the desires of Harvest, we want to be a church that makes disciples, for Christ's glory here in this church, in the city, in the nation, and on that impacts the world. But one thing we don't want to miss is reaching the next generation. You know the number one mission-sending city in the world two generations ago was London? And today, we consistently send missionaries to London because it's nearly considered unreached. We don't want to Miss this next generation. It's important. We always have to be looking, going, how can we reach the next generation? So my family, we're praying about how God would have us to be a part of this, and we invite you to do the same. Well, um, we're in a series here, Investigating Jesus. We've been in this series for the last three springs, and where we are uh, this spring, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. It's commonly called the Passion of Jesus Christ. For the Jewish people, it was the Jewish Passover. Uh, that was a celebration that occurred during that week. And what would happen, we're told in Exodus chapter 12, is that each Jewish family at Passover, and make no mistake about it, Passover uh, is the clearest uh, of the Jewish holidays that points to Jesus. Every single one of the Jewish holy days is a shadow of the coming Messiah, but the clearest one is Passover, that Jesus will die as a lamb slain for the sins of the world. And in Exodus chapter 12, the Jewish people were told, you're to take a lamb into your home for five days. On the 10th day of Nisan, that was the name of the month, on the 10th day of Nisan, you bring this lamb into your house and you were to inspect it to make sure it was blameless. That was a, without blemish. And then, get this, on the 14th day of Nisan, at twilight, we're told in Exodus chapter 12, verse 6, you were to kill that lamb. And Jesus rode into Jerusalem on a donkey on the 10th day of Nisan. And he would undergo an inspection like no other. And then, on the 14th day of Nisan, at twilight, as Jesus hung on the cross, he breathed his last and died. And he died just as within the temple compound, lambs were being killed in remembrance of Passover. Jesus, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb, was dying outside the city. Well, today what we're going to do is we are going to uh, go deep into this story of Jesus' most uh, I would say his most critical examination that he will undergo. And we're going to go deep into this story. And we're going to see what was going on here. And what, what I hope happens is we get a, a sense of the, the emotion and the feel and what people were thinking and what's going on. And, and we, we, we can almost feel like we're there in some ways. 
And then Jesus is going to hit the people that are asking him questions with a statement that is so powerful, I think it speaks still to us today. I don't want us to miss this, so we're going to see that here at the end. Well, what's happened? It's Wednesday of Passion Week, Passover Week. Just two days from now, Jesus will die. And Kenan last week taught on a parable that occurred on Wednesday of Passion Week. And during this parable, what it was about, it was about a master who owned a vineyard. And he gave that vineyard to some tenants to look over for him. And the master sent a servant to go check on the tenants. And the tenants beat him, which was very disrespectful. And they should have deserved death. But the master, in his mercy, sends another servant. They beat that servant. And then he sends his son, saying, there is no way they'll beat my son. And not only do they beat the son, they beat the son and they kill the son. And this parable was given with the religious leadership standing and hearing. And Jesus is giving this parable, uh, one that's of judgment, but it's not only of judgment, it's of mercy. Jesus is hoping that the religious leaders in hearing this would go, whoa, that's about us. We need to turn from our sin and turn toward Jesus. So that's where we pick up today. Jesus has just given that parable. We're in Luke chapter 20. And we'll start reading in verse 19. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. It says, The scribes and the chief priests sought to lay hands on him that very hour, for they perceived he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. Now, it mentions two groups that are here. The chief priest... And the, uh, the chief priests and the scribes that are there. And these two groups are members of the official ruling council of Israel. Israel had a ruling council. It would be like the Supreme Court and the Congress all wrapped up into one. And what it was made up was it was 70 people plus the high priest. And typically, uh, the typical representation was they'd have about 24 chief priests. 24 elders, typically two of those representing each of the 12 tribes, and then 22 scribes. And what the scribes were, man, these guys were the experts in the law. They had the entirety of the Old Testament memorized. They memorized all the extra laws. They knew the laws inside and out. And these guys hear what Jesus has just said, and what's their response? They want to lay hands on Jesus right then and there at that very hour. Now, Jesus tells us something about these religious leaders in Matthew 23. He says that they put heavy yokes on the people. And they don't do anything to lift a finger to even help the people in any way. That their yoke is burdensome. But Jesus said, what about his yoke? He said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. These religious leaders, they use and they abuse the people for their own selfish wants and desires. And here's how they rule. By fear and intimidation. They tell the people, if you do not keep all these rules and these commandments, well, it's not uh, perfectly, it's not going to go well for you. You may end up separated from God in hell. So they dangle this over the people and they rule by fear and intimidation, which is always how false religion rules, by fear and intimidation. And these religious leaders, they want to lay hands on Jesus because they want to kill him right then and there, but they've got a problem. One of the things I love about the Bible 
when I study scripture, it leaves no doubt in my mind that there is a God in heaven above and he put this book together exactly like he wants it. As you see what's going on in all these events, I just go, only God could have done that. Look, in 30 AD, that's about the time that Jesus' ministry starts. In 30 AD, Caesar said, hey, the Jewish people, you can't execute capital punishment anymore, meaning you can't kill people. If you find somebody guilty of something that deserves death, you can't do that. And providentially, that happened right as Jesus' ministry starts. So they want to kill Jesus, but guess what? They got a problem. They can't kill Jesus, even though they want to. And it says, they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But yet they don't repent. Now another interesting thing, this Sanhedrin, the ruling council, they had already declared a verdict on Jesus about who they think he is. They declared a verdict back in Luke chapter 11, verses 15 through 19. They say this. Jesus, he he does this miracle where he heals this guy, or he casts out a demon in this guy. And the Jewish people had these extra writings that they believed that Messiah was the only person who could cast a demon out of a person like this. So he does what we call a messianic miracle. People looked and said, only Messiah can do that. So Jesus does this miracle, and all the crowds are going, is he Messiah? He's got to be Messiah. He must be Messiah. And then the religious leaders speak up. And they say, this guy isn't Messiah. He does these miracles by the power of Beelzebub. They don't say he's of God. They say his power comes from The enemy from the devil, from Satan, they declared Jesus to be satanic. And at that point, there is a chasm cast. And from that point forward, in Jesus' ministry, if you're going to follow Jesus, guess what you're doing? You're rejecting the official leadership of the nation, the Sanhedrin. And to reject the leadership of the nation, it might cost you your job. It might cost you your position in society. It's got a cost involved. So in order to follow Jesus, you're rejecting the leaders. And what's happening, more and more people are following Jesus. And the religious leaders are saying, hey, we're losing our power. We're losing that which we love. What they loved was holding on to their image. To their position. They would do anything to hold on to their image. Jesus says, these guys, they love their seats of prominence. They love walking into a place and people recognize them. They love being at the head of the table at the banquet. They love their fine clothes. They love all of these things. But guess what they don't love? They don't love the people. And they don't love God. They only love themselves and want to do whatever they can to keep their lifestyle how it is. So they, it says here at the end of verse 19 that they fear the people. Why do they fear the people? Because if the people turn to Jesus, they are rejecting them and they will lose their power and authority and they don't want to do that. They want to hold on to their power. They want to hold on to their authority. They love this image they've created. They love their positions. So look at what happens in verse 20. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be sincere. That they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. Now Matthew chapter 22 and Mark chapter 12 tell this exact same story. And in it, it reveals who these spies are. These spies are two groups of people. 
One, a religious party called the Pharisees. We read about the Pharisees a lot in Scripture. Now, the Pharisees believed in the entirety of the Old Testament, and they were very hopeful in Messiah. They believed Messiah is coming. They were watching for him. They were waiting for him. But they also believed when Messiah came, he was going to be a conquering Messiah, and he was going to kick Rome out. Now, Scripture speaks of Messiah as a conquering Messiah, but what they didn't realize is when Jesus returns... He'll be conquering and setting up his kingdom. They miss that. So they're so caught up in Messiah is going to come and kick out Rome. And they also couldn't get over this. Jesus broke their rules. You see, in in Scripture, there are 613 Mosaic laws. Jesus never breaks a single Mosaic law. Do you know that? He never breaks a single command of Scripture. But here's what happened. The religious leaders added commands and more commands, and more commands. They were fences, they called them, that they would have a rule, and they didn't want to break that rule, so they put another rule around it, and another rule, and another rule, and another rule. And by the time you get to Jesus' day, there are 10,000 additional laws. Scripture calls them the traditions of the elders. And Jesus tramples on the traditions of the elders. He doesn't worry about those, and they couldn't handle that. And they said, he cannot be Messiah. So that Pharisees are there. And it's interesting, the other group that's there, it's not a religious party. It's a political party of Jews called the Herodians. Now by their name, you can maybe guess who they were loyal to, to Herod. Herod represented Rome. The Herodians were these people. They said, if you can't beat them, join them. We'll join Rome. We'll be loyal to Rome. We think the best option is just to be a part of Rome. Now, these two groups of people typically would hate each other. The Pharisees who said, get rid of Rome, kick Rome out. We want Messiah to come and get rid of him. And the Herodians are going, yeah, we like Rome. But in Mark chapter 3, first six verses, there's this man with a withered hand. And Jesus heals him on the Sabbath. And that broke one of their traditions, one of their additional rules, and the Pharisees couldn't handle it. They hated it so much so that they said, we've got to get rid of this guy, and they went and plotted with the Herodians, it says in Mark chapter 3, verse 6. That was three years before what we're reading here. For three years, the Pharisees and the Herodians have been plotting, how can we get rid of Jesus? We've got to do something about this guy. So here's what they did. They pretended to be sincere in verse 20. Do you know that's what false religion always does? False religion always pretends to be sincere. False religious people always pretend to be sincere. Oh, we know what motions to go through, what to say, what to do, how to do it, all that sort of thing. It's pretty easy to figure out. But God can see the heart. So they go, and here's what they do. The Rodians and Pharisees, they find the pro-Jesus crowd, which is swelling. It's getting bigger. Jesus is near the temple at this time. And they join in and say, hey, we're going to pretend to be a part of the pro-Jesus group. We'll just blend in. And the reason they want to do that, look, reading on in verse 20, that they might catch him in something he said. They want to catch Jesus saying something that would cause the people to go, he can't be Messiah. And to cause Rome to go, we've got to kill him. 
That's what they want to do is catch him in something he says that will put his, his ministry, his life, everything to an end. So look at what it says they want to do at the end of verse 20. They want to catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. As I mentioned, they've got to get him to Rome. They don't have the authority to carry out capital punishment. So they've got to get Rome to want to kill him. Now, they want to get the governor to kill him. And who is the governor at this time? Many of us know his name. It's Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate lived in a uh, beautiful seaport city along the Mediterranean. Huge seaport. Everything made of marble. Absolutely phenomenal. Called Caesarea. Uh, I'll actually be there this Saturday in Caesarea, taking the team to Israel, even Friday. And the ruins of it are even magnificent. I mean, this city's overwhelming. lived in this beautiful Mediterranean city. And um, on a side note, if you would pray for our team, we're going to be working with some house churches in Israel. As you can guess, the minority religion belief system in Israel is Christianity. There's far more Jews, that's the majority by far, even Muslims, and even a couple other religious religions that are even more minority that are bigger than Christianity there. So to get to work and labor alongside the local church there and these house churches is quite a joy. So I would covet uh, your prayers for our team. But here, here's Pilate. He lives in this beautiful city called Caesarea, but for some reason he comes down to Jerusalem at this time. Why is that? Because Pilate's primary job was this, Pax Romana. The Roman peace. The Romans would keep peace at any cost. That was their primary thing. And they would keep peace at a brutal cost. If any uprising came, they would squash it quickly with brutality and with force. And Pilate had a little bit of a problem. During his reign over this area, at this time, there had already been three rebellions that we have on record. Three rebellions And Pilate can't afford another rebellion. These rebellions had to be squashed and blood was shed. So Pilate knows, I've got to go to Rome to keep the peace. Why? Well, Rome was a city of about 200,000 people at this time. But get this. And this just shows God's providence, how God works. Two million, over two million Jewish people from all over the world came to Jerusalem for Passover. It's their most holy holiday. And why does God do this? Because Jesus, coming at Passover, the fulfillment of the Passover lamb is Jesus Christ, and God brings every Jewish person from all over the world to be there when the lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, dies. Everybody's there. So this city that typically has 200,000 people now is 2 million. They didn't have hotels. They didn't have restaurants. So can you imagine the chaos in this city? Jesus, it says, he stayed outside Bethlehem. He stayed out on the Mount of Olives in a little town called Bethany. So Pilate's thinking, two million people in Jerusalem at Passover. Man, somebody bumps somebody wrong next thing. There's a riot. I've got to be there to make sure no trouble happens. So... That's an interesting mix. Look at how God is orchestrating all these pieces to bring all these things together in his perfect timing and plan. So they want to deliver him up to the governor. Now, in verse 21, 
So they ask him, Teacher, we know that you speak the truth rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Now, in their minds, these spies who are pretending to be pro-Jesus, in their minds, they've told a 100% lie. But guess what? It's 100% true. I, I imagine it pained them to say that first word, teacher. I mean, that, that word was reserved for the highest of high rabbis in this culture. And yet they called Jesus teacher, which is absolutely who he was. And they said, we know that you speak and teach rightly. While they didn't believe that, that's true. It says, we know that you speak and teach rightly. That word for rightly, in the Greek, it's orthos. We get our word orthopedic. Uh, orthodontics, like an orthodontist, he keeps your teeth straight. Orthodoxy, right belief. So the idea of this is he teaches the straight truth. The straight and narrow truth is what Jesus teaches. He teaches what is true about God and he shows no partiality, which is absolutely true. I mean, Jesus hung out with tax collectors and prostitutes. And yet he also hung out with the highest of religious leaders on the Sanhedrin, people like Nicodemus who followed him and people like Joseph Arimathea who became a follower of his. So Jesus showed no partiality. In fact, within his 12 disciples, he had a former tax collector who repented. But he also had a guy named Simon the Zealot. And zealots hated Rome and would want to kill anybody who was pro-Rome. He had two guys, if they hadn't repented, that were his disciples that would have killed each other. And yet, Jesus redeems them. And takes me. He shows no partiality. And then it says, but you teach the way of God, which again is true. That's who Jesus is. Now, they're going to ask him a question. And this question has been so carefully crafted. We can easily read over it. But it is a question that is designed to bring Jesus to an end. It's designed to kill him. To scatter his followers, to end everything about Jesus. This is a question that's so well crafted that no matter which way Jesus answers, he's done. He can't give a right answer. I mean, I think they've been working on this question for quite some time. Let's see it. Verse 22 Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? That's one of the great rabbinic debates of the day. Um, and some translations say tax, which is a little bit of a weak translation. This is more than a tax. Uh, it's a tribute, meaning we're just not paying him our taxes. We are recognizing he's in charge. We are recognizing he's over us. We are recognizing he is Lord. It's a tribute. It was a form of worship. You see, at this point, the Jewish people, they were taxed brutally. Some people say they were taxed as much as 70%. They were taxed on their grain, on their oil, their wine, their land. Everything was taxed. And here, they're trying to bring Jesus into this debate about the tribute. In fact, they believed to carry one of these coins in your pocket was a, a form of idol worship. Now, let's just say, for instance, Jesus answers this question with, No, no way. Do not give that tribute to Caesar. Do not worship him. Do not acknowledge him. 
Well, who's standing there? The Herodians. Now, all the people who believed he was Messiah would go, yes, Messiah, conquer, take over now. And the Herodians would go and tell Pilate and say, hey, Pilate, this guy Jesus has a following of thousands. You've probably heard of him. He's telling people not to pay taxes. What are you going to do? And Pilate would have ended Jesus without question. In fact, this happens other times in history. In 4 AD, there was a man named Judas of Galilee. And Judas of Galilee, the, the Jewish historian Josephus tells us his story. And he says, Judas of Galilee rose up and said, I'm Messiah. Developed a following. And he said, we're done paying tribute. We're done. And look at what scripture says happens to him in Acts chapter 5 verse 37. Scripture recalls this event with Judas. Now, this is Gamaliel, the leader of the Sanhedrin, that supreme court at the time. And he's speaking, they've got Peter and John on trial. And he's speaking about what they should do with him. And he says this, after him, Judas the Galilean rose up in the days of the census. Why do you take a census? To count your people so you know how much taxes to collect. And he drew some people away after him. He too perished and all his followers were scattered. So here's what Gamaliel was saying on that trial. He's saying, listen, we've had a guy come on and Rome's killed him. He said he was Messiah, said don't pay taxes and Rome killed him. And all his followers scattered and there was nothing to it. He's saying, this guy Jesus, the Romans killed him. And if his followers don't scatter, you know it's an act of God. So this is a life or death question. In fact, about 30-ish years after this event, the Jewish people say we're done paying tribute. And Rome will come in and crush them in 66 AD. In 70 AD, they will destroy the temple. So I want you to get the weight of this question. The Jewish people don't want to pay tribute, but they feel forced to because they know if they don't, Rome will kill them. And they believe Messiah... What is he supposed to do? He's supposed to crush Rome. So, if Rome kills Messiah, people probably look and say he can't be Messiah because that's what they held to. Now, let's just say the other, the other answer. Jesus says, oh, sure. Pay your tribute to Caesar. Who cares? You should pay your taxes. Be a good citizen. Now, if he does that, the Pharisees are right there. And they're going to go, no, Messiah is going to come and he's going to conquer and he's going to get rid of the oppressive forces. This guy can't be Messiah. And the people would have rebelled. And in all likelihood, they would have picked up stones right there in that rebellion and stoned Jesus to death. This is a life or death question that he's dealing with here. Let's see what Jesus said or what happens in verse 23. But Jesus perceived their craftiness. And said to them, Matthew's gospel says he perceived their wickedness. Do you know Jesus always knows the heart of people? Our actions and what we do, and we can fool a lot of people and we can go through a lot of things. But Jesus always looks at the heart. These guys were spies. They were blending in, pretending to be a part of the crowd, asking an innocent question. Jesus perceived their wickedness. He perceived their craftiness with his question. He knew their motive. He knew their intention. He knew what they planned to do. And he, in typical rabbinic question, will ask them a question back. Look at what he says. Show me a denarius. 
Whose likeness and inscription does it have? They said, Caesar's. Now, this is probably where the phrase, show me the money, comes from here. Jesus um, asked to see the denarius. And um, I can imagine the Jewish people, the people all getting a little nervous. Nobody wanted to be caught with a denarius in their pocket. It was like having a little idol in their pocket, but they all had to use them. In fact, you know what Jesus did the day before on Wednesday? The day before Wednesday on Tuesday of, of the Passover week? He went into the temple and cleaned out the temple of what? The money changers. What were they changing? Denarius for temple money. So they were already operating in this denarius. This, this, they were already utilizing it. And Jesus says, hey, show me a denarius. And I imagine nobody wanted to be caught with one. It got passed up. So now Jesus ends up with a denarius. I got online. I ordered a denarius. I could have got a real one for a whole lot of money, but I got the $10 replica. Uh, <laughs> I know you can't see it, so I'll put it on the screen. Now, here's what happened in the Roman world. Each new Roman emperor from 300 B.C. to 300 A.D., when they came into power, they would stamp the coins with their face on it. So when you looked at your money, you go, that dude's in charge. That dude is Lord over me. Okay? It was his way, and they would circulate throughout the empire, circulate throughout the world. And as Rome took over more and more of the world, it went more and more with them, these coins. Now, this is Caesar Tiberius. He was the Caesar that reigned starting in 19 AD um, and reigned during Jesus' trial and crucifixion. His coin says this, Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. That's what it says on the front there. Augustus Tiberius, son of the divine Augustus. Now, his father was Augustus Caesar. Augustus Caesar, if you open in the beginning of Luke, he's the Caesar who ruled at the beginning of Jesus' life. And here's what Augustus Caesar said. He said, my cosmic hour has come. I'm God. He declared himself to be God. And then his stepson Tiberius said this. I'm the son of the divine Augustus. I'm the son of God. Do you get what this coin is declaring? This is the coin of a false Messiah. This is the coin of a counterfeit Messiah. Right there when the real Messiah showed up. Oh, in the back of it, see him sitting there on that throne looking good there? That side says this. High priest of the Roman state. Do you know what the job of a high priest is? To mediate between God and humanity. Humanity who has rebelled against God and deserves the wrath of God. High priest steps in and says, whoa, I'll mediate. And that's what he's declaring to do. Jesus is our high priest. He's our mediator. He's the only one who can step between us and a God who we deserve wrath from and bring us justice because he's paid the price from us. There is no other high priest that we can turn to. He's the high priest. This is the coin of a false Messiah declaring himself to be the son of God and declaring himself to be high priest. And Jesus holds it up. And he asks him, hey, does anybody have it? Let me hold it up. And look at, Look at what he's about to ask him here in verse 25. Now, before I jump there, all the Romans, 
these worldly Romans, they place their hope, their esteem, their worth, their security, all these things were placed in Rome, in Caesar. And that's the way people of the world still operate. Their hope, their worth, their value, their esteem is not found in Jesus. It's found in the things of these world, these false messiahs. These things that promise what only Messiah can deliver on. The world promises what only Jesus can give. And here in verse 25, he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God... The things that are God's. It's interesting. He used the word render. That's a a powerful word. It has this idea in it. He created it. Caesar made it. He lost it. And you've returned it to him. So all Jesus says is, hey, these coins, Caesar made them. Just give them back to him. He's not saying pay tribute. He says they belong to Caesar. But he doesn't stop there. What's he say next? Give to God the things that are God's. Now, this coin was made in the image of Caesar. And it circulated the world declaring Caesar rules and declaring the image of Caesar. That way people knew who he was. What's made in the image of God? Go back to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. It says, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God made us in his image. There's nothing else in all creation made in the image of God. Now, we're not all powerful or all knowing or everywhere like God is, but we can feel. We can think. We can make decisions. We can can love like God. Yet all that got land blasted, destroyed in Genesis chapter 3 at the fall. When the fall occurred, this was destroyed. And ever since then, humanity has been struggling to go and live out the appropriate image that we're supposed to live out, which is the image of God. People are always trying to live out other images. Now I look to my children. My children like Kentucky basketball. I sort of plague them with that. And uh, they want to wear Kentucky jerseys. They like the Grizzlies. They want to wear... They, they, the images that they look at, they start to want to show. And we all have these images that we want to show. But here he says, give to God the things that are God's. What he's saying is because these coins are stamped with Caesar's image, give them to Caesar, but because you are stamped in the image of God, give your life back to God. These coins are to go circulate the world declaring Caesar. You're to go circulate the world declaring Jesus Christ. You're to go declare the image of God to this world. And we worship and express the image of God as we praise God, as we adore Him, as we give Him glory, as we obey Him, as we love Him, as we trust Him, as people see in us the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness, self control that can only come from someone who's had that image redeemed, who is living out the image of God within them. Now, 
Jesus just gave the religious leaders one more chance to turn. You guys are made in the image of God. Get back to God what is his. And look at their response in verse 26. And they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said. But marveling at his answer, they became silent. I so wish it said they repented. That they said, we've been living for the image of our, of our fancy clothes and our, the way people perceive us and the best seats that we get at banquets and our titles. And when we show up, people think we're great. Everybody wants to be like us. We've been living for those things. We want to live for the image of God. But they didn't. They didn't. And the people marvel at his answer. They don't want to kill him. They're amazed at what he has just said. And you see, for us, we're made in the image of God. Imagio Dei. It's something unique that we are made in God's image. Yet, Sin has marred it. And Jesus, through the process of sanctification, makes us more and more and more reflect that image. Now, Scripture talks a lot about the image of God. It talks about it in Colossians a lot. And in 2 Corinthians, in particular, I'm thinking of chapter 3. And it speaks of it in this way. It has this idea that what we behold, we begin to reflect. What we behold, we begin to reflect. I mean, it's a very simple principle. As I talked about my boys, they... Behold Kentucky basketball, so what do they begin to do? They begin to reflect it, right? I mean, it's very simple. People, got, it's seen very clearly in teenagers. A teenager loves skating, begins to reflect that. When he loves politics, we still do it as adults. What we behold, what we take hold of, what we look at and gaze at, we begin to reflect. And we need to behold what? Jesus Christ. We need to behold our God and reflect Him to the world that needs to see Him. In fact, there's a lot of names given in the Bible to those who follow Jesus. Disciple, saint, and perhaps the most powerful one is only used three times in the Bible. And that's Christian. It's one that we use all the time and it's lost its power, but in Jesus' day, man, that was a powerful word because here's what it said. It literally means this, little Christ, that you so reflect the image of Jesus Christ that I'm going to call you little Jesus. I'm going to call you little Christ. You so look like him. You love like him. You think like him. You care for people like him. You worship God like him. You so reflect Jesus that I'm going to call you a Christian, a little Christ. See, this name that those of us here today who follow Jesus, who have trusted him of Christian, is not some flippant name. It's a name of high, high honor. You're a little Christ. You're an image bearer of Jesus to this world. We're to go and bear his image and likeness to this entire world where people see in us Jesus. But the only way we can do it is by taking hold of him, beholding Jesus, being in awe of him, loving him, seeing him clearly. Then we begin to reflect him. Well, Jesus... 
his examiners here, I mean, I think they had to be so frustrated. They had this question. If he answers it, yes, we got him. If he answers it, no, we got him. And Jesus totally just blows it up and goes another way. It says, if you're made in God's image, give yourself back to God. But they did not want to do it. And as Jesus had his examiners, we're about to take communion. And communion, scripturally speaking, it's a time of examination. I know we take it every week here and it can easily become a thing that you walk forward and go through the motions and do. Uh, That happens when you do something frequently. But that's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a time of examination of ourselves to say, hey, how have I sinned against God? I want to confess that. If I've sinned against my brother, I want to go and confess that before I come and take communion with God because I want to be right with others in order to be right with God. It's a time of examination. So, As we do this, I want to invite you to examine yourself, your heart. What's really going on in your heart? What what images are you clinging on to more than the image of God? What are you holding on to him more than him? What when people see you, what do you reflect? What do you reflect to people when they look at you? Is it do you reflect something that looks more like this world? Or do you reflect something that looks more like Jesus? What do you reflect when, when people see you? Take time to ask that. Remain the image of God. And if you're here today and you're trying to live for this world, know you're living outside of the image you're created. And the only way you can come to God is through Jesus, the perfect high priest who is the Lamb of God, slain for the sins of the world, sufficient for all, efficient, for all who will believe, if you will come forward and trust him or or just confess to yourself you trust him, he'll bring you home. You can be secure in him. For many of us, we're here today and we just haven't... um, Man, this world's voice screams at us, doesn't it? Turn on television, turn on anything, the world just screams at us. And if we don't continually come back, we are going to begin to look more and more like this world than more and more like Jesus. And my prayer is that the people of Harvest, that the people of God, that Christians in this building and beyond, around this world, in our city, would begin to really, really be what that title is. That when people see us, they see a little Jesus. Let's pray. God, I thank you for your word. And I confess, when I open your word, I see the powerful mind, the providence of God that has orchestrated these things in time and space and history to give us exactly what we need to hear from you. Lord, I am amazed that you would come and die a death that I deserve, that we deserve, in order to reconcile us to our Father. You are a good high priest. You are the Son of God. And Lord, I pray that we would not reflect the images of this world so much as we reflect the image of Jesus Christ as we behold him and stare at him and look at him and take him in. As we behold God, we reflect that more to the world. So Lord, now as we enter a time of communion, we want to commune with the living God. Lord, I pray that we take time to examine and reflect. I pray that your spirit would move and speak as it only can. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tables are open. 
Thank you for listening to the audio from Harvest Church in Memphis, Tennessee. Feel free to make copies and distribute this content, but please do not charge for those copies.